at Jared. We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy holiday, whatever it may be for folks listening. Dan and I are going to be celebrating Christmas next week, so TBD on the podcast. Uh, but in any case, uh, we're talking about Syracuse this week, and uh, we're starting with football. Dan, um, what are you most excited about through about a week and a half of the Dino Babers era? It seems like there's a lot going right. Um, even if we're losing a couple of recruits here and there, I don't think anyone's necessarily shocked by who's dropped off to this point. Yeah, it's almost like we're we're trading recruits rather than like out and out losing them. Um, it seems like the guys who have left have almost entirely been kind of different schemes. Uh, you can kind of get a sense for what we're looking for, especially along the offensive line. We've lost a couple guys, you know, even guys that we were pretty high on, um, and we've taken in some that seem maybe a little bit leaner, a little more athletic um, to I'm, – I'm guessing that's what he's looking for uh, out of his system. I, I know some people noted that Bowling Green didn't have those ten alignment, but Bowling Green, remember, he was still kind of working with what he was left by Dave Clawson, who does not run the same – type of offensive system so um that like obviously he got tremendous success out of what he had but that wasn't even uh, a team that was sculpted to his liking so um i'm excited with uh just kind of generally it seems like we're being very aggressive on the recruiting path um i think virginia and illinois are going to hate us in a couple weeks because we seem to be doing a number on their on their classes especially with getting uh BD in here on, on the staff who was probably the, he seemed like the most involved recruiter on that Virginia staff uh, under Mike London. So that might be the biggest thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks, his hiring, because he's uh, seems to be picking up right where some of our, our best recruiters in the last staff left off, if not like potentially outdoing them. Yeah. I mean, obviously where you benefit here versus our previous staff when they came in was the fact that these were a lot of guys who were already, um, involved in D one programs. Um, you know, in the case of Beatty involved in FBS, well, a power five program in the rest involved with Bowling Green. Um, so you have guys like Sean Lewis who have been doing this and now doing it to a much wider audience. I mean, his, his Drake, uh, gifts have become, uh, pretty entertaining over time as, as Lewis has really seemed to pound the pavement. Uh, more than anybody. Um, but I know you mentioned Virginia and Illinois getting pissed. Um, we've seen some things on Twitter. What do you think about Kentrell Moran? Um, he definitely seems interested. Um, could he be kind of the first domino? And we've seen it with some other guys. I mean, we could very well see a couple different players who used to be committed to Rutgers and, and other, um, you know, Northeast schools. Could Moran be the kind of the first guy to... Uh, Oh, bigger, I mean, still a three-star, but bigger name uh, to be drawn in specifically by um, the Syracuse offensive scheme. Um, if he's not 
I I think we have a very good chance of getting him at this point. Um, he's been an Illinois guy for a while. But it actually, it, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing how it works out because he was a guy that the last staff was targeting pretty heavily, especially after the Robert Washington stuff fell through. Um, and like so many of the other, these other Illinois kids that we've been going after, um, I mean, that's a pretty local stool to where most of our coaches were at Bowling Green. So they seem to have a board of players who maybe weren't like as attainable in Bowling Green, but who they've uh, established relationships with. And as since be- so many of them came over in the same group, um, it seems like they almost just ported that that target list over. Um, so now there are guys like Moran who already liked SU under Schaefer. Uh, I'm guessing he had an established relationship with the Baber staff, even though if they were kind of out of the picture because he wanted something bigger than a match school. But now it kind of combines those two things. And um, just based on the, the Twitter activity and everything else, it it's definitely seems like Syracuse, if they're not the one to beat, they're a big time contender where with Schaefer, it was kind of like, we need some things to go right here for, uh, for him to flip. Um, but I, I would almost expect him to end up at SU just based on reading the tea leaves, which, you know, in recruiting can be dangerous, but uh, I'm pretty excited with how, how things are going on that front for sure. Yeah. I mean, what do you think the difference is between the two staffs? I mean, for the most part, and, you know, I hit on like kind of why they were different at the beginning, but, you know, a lot of people who really wanted Schaefer and Co. to stay, and you and I have discussed this ad nauseum, um, recruiting was kind of the big draw, and, and you and me and others contended that recruiting really wasn't going much better. Um, with Schaefer at the helm, and part of that could be attributed right off the bat to, to being in the ACC, um, for you, do you think recruiting is improved at this time? Um, I mean, in very, very small sample size. And do you think that, that recruiting could be one of the places we actually see an uptick um, this time around? Uh, I think it's too early to, to, to call it improved or anything. I think there's a potential there. Um, I think Schaefer did a pretty decent job of recruiting. Uh, some of it was oversold a little bit because um, he received kind of a natural bump with the jump to the ACC, where which Marone didn't get. But I think... Um, it particularly could maybe a slight step forward under Schaefer from where it was under Marone. Um, but there were also a lot of guys who, you know, the biggest guys in the classes fell through the tracks, um, whether, and I'm not blaming Schaefer for all of that. Obviously I think with Syracuse, you take appropriate risks, but um, it seems like we had a rash of guys who uh, either didn't qualify or the Robert Washington thing is just, you know, it's all a whole new level of craziness, um, which might not be Schaefer's fault. And maybe, and, and I, kind of agreed with a lot of the the risk taking because when you're Syracuse you have a higher uh you know there's a higher need for that kind of talent but um it seems like we're targeting we're, we're, we're aggressively targeting a, a slightly higher level of player maybe that's just Babers and staff like trying to seeing where they are in terms of the recruiting world at this new school um so I'd say it's, it's too early to tell um if it's going to be a big jump forward I think some of the biggest, and it's hard because he's coming from a match school, so you know you you don't really have this uh, tremendous pedigree on that, and he's and he didn't have a chance to really establish himself at Bowling Green in terms of building uh, this program because he was only there for two years. Um, but I think we'll 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 see uh, what kind of impact he has, and I think a lot of it might just be the steam. I think the steam is going to draw a certain player that wasn't going to want to play in a, you know, a, a pro style or, or a more of a West Coast system or 
um, whatever it was that McDonald was trying to run, um, where he can, you know, Babers can point to, hey, these are the stats we put up at Bowling Green. We're now at an ACC stool. We're going to put up the same numbers, if not better ones, and we're going to start to try to beat the top talent in the country. So come play. And, uh, you know, I don't expect us to start competing with Florida State tomorrow, but I think it, it would be, uh, if he's successful on the field, I, I think we'll see a pretty so- solid uptick just because eventually you have to win to prove you. Uh, prove your program to people unless maybe you're Mike London. And even he saw a pretty big drop off after a while. Um, but I, I, I think if he starts to make, if Baber starts to make bowls on a regular basis and the steam is fun and, and exciting. And, and as we talked about a lot last week, very different from what other Northeastern schools are offering. Um, even if he's not a dynamite recruiter, I think there is uh, a lot to sell there because of that. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think, you know what, these are, what we've seen on this staff is that there's some seasoned guys, also some unseasoned guys, but the unseasoned guys seem to be really pounding the pavement, getting out there, getting in front of guys, um, and then we're seeing a lot of the carryover from Bowling Green. Um, what, what I really like about the opportunity Syracuse has here with guys, like, younger guys like Sean Lewis, their co-offensive coordinator, is guys who we can potentially mold into great recruiters by way of the scheme and if they if the scheme allows them to be very successful um in terms of of getting you know high three-star low four-star talent over a period of three to four years um yes they may move on but in the meantime um they did bring in tons of talent and they could you know kind of sow their oats and become great recruiters um i I do think that you know you and i talked about it sean's talked about it others have too um if someone's going to leave after three or four years that means that they were good enough to do so and that means the Syracuse was successful um, I think that doesn't necessarily just go for Babers, but can also go for a lot of the guys he brings over. Um, when I talked to him last week um, in the interview I posted up on the site, uh, you know, he seemed to believe that you know, "Dance with the Girl You Brought You" was the, the, the quote he used, and it was you know, the guys that helped you get to where you are, bring them to the next job as a reward um, for 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 helping that. Um, and, and I think that. That speaks volumes about the character, about the character and the type of guys that he's bringing along, and the loyalty there. Um, but in a way where Babers doesn't seem like a guy who's just going to let someone skate along without results. Um, and I think again, we're, small sample size, yes, but we're seeing that um, very early. And and I guess pivoting a little bit, still on recruiting though. Um, Syracuse uh, obviously is a private school. You know, we don't necessarily have to, or I mean, nobody really has to per se, but. Uh, we don't necessarily have to lean on one state or, or, or series of states uh, to fill out our talent. I think we've seen over the years um, things have we shifted. We also can't. Um, also can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we were going to rely on New York, things would go very poorly. Uh, <laughs> although we are seeing some more um, kind of upper echelon talent out of New York State, even if the, the overall depth isn't there, uh, we are seeing more. Uh, still, you know, uh, Syracuse kind of has always spread a wider net um, and while we once were, were getting a lot of guys out of the Northeast, plus maybe some Illinois, um, occasionally something in the, in the Virginia, you know, D.C., Maryland corridor that down there, um, I think recent trends shifted, uh, you know, toward Georgia and Florida and, and Illinois area. Um, and now it seems like, I mean, I, I said in a post the other day, we have nine different states uh, so far. Dan, do, do you expect this to continue where we really see... Um, 
you know, no real trends that we can point to in terms of where kids are from um, and, and just casting a wide net around the country? Or do you think that, that over time that this is going to be a group that kind of hones in on maybe, you know, four or five key states? Uh, I expect it'll be kind of similar to what we've had. Um, I don't think there was like a drastic difference in the last couple staffs, except that Marone definitely targeted New York City more, uh, for better or worse. Um, obviously, when McDonald hit team, there was like that mad rush for Florida, but Florida's always been a place where we go after. So I think maybe the amount um, changes. I know uh, I was looking a little bit at, at some older, uh, I was trying to put something together and just kind of ran out of time, but um, I was looking at some of the first uh, recruiting classes that were available on Stout, which were P recruiting classes. And he was like very, very heavy Eastern Pennsylvania and um, a lot more uh, Virginia. Uh, area stuff, which I think we'll see a renewal in with Beatty. Um, we've already seen a bunch of guys targeted. Uh, there's a wide receiver, um, Nero, Nero uh, and Shaka, who was one of his commits at UVA, who I, I think he could flip any minute at this point. Um, so I think there might be like a slight, like rebalancing of the places that were targeted. Obviously the, the DMV was like abandoned by Schaefer and, and even Marone later on. Um, but I think it's always going to be a balance of, you know, some Midwestern spots, obviously New York when applicable, PA, Jersey, a little bit Northeast, a lot, good amount of Florida. And then, you know, Schaefer looked at Georgia a lot more. Maybe that's not a place that Babers is as comfortable with, but Babers might look more at uh, the Carolinas than Schaefer did. Um, but I think generally it's going to look pretty similar to what we've seen because those are the pockets where Syracuse has proven it can get talent out of and, from what we've seen from the staff, it's a lot of the same spots. Yeah, I agree there. And you know what? I think it's it's something that started kind of hitting on last week with that uh, Northeast Recruiting Advantage post, and it's something that you could probably expand more upon, is that out of all the schools you know in the Northeast that have joined conferences that may have been outside of the geographic footprint, I feel like Syracuse and Pitt might be the most advantageously positioned geographically, all, all other things aside because of their ability to kind of straddle um, the Northeast and Midwest a little bit. Um, both schools play in Florida and the Carolinas and in the Virginia area enough, especially Pitt being in the coastal, um, that they can get to those places. Um, I feel like at a conference, they were able to, to really, you know, play in the Midwest a bunch. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the two schools can kind of take from each other since they play um, every year. So Pitt can grab New York kids and has Syracuse has in the past been able to grab Pennsylvania kids, but not as much recently. Um, and do you think that, that Pitt and Syracuse kind of have an advantage there? Just, just from, just, again, purely geographic standpoint, do you think that's largely overblown? Um, I think Pitt definitely has an edge just because Western PA is pretty fertile in itself. And Syracuse is kind of um, more, offering like trips because central New York, you know, maybe one, two comes out a year. Um, Western PA is very, very strong. Although Penn state obviously is also a force there. Um, but I do think like the ability to offer a Florida game at least every other year. Um, ideally you'd be able to get down there a little more. Although we saw what happened this year. It wasn't great. Um, when we went to USF, uh, that helps. Um, I mean, I think if Rutgers ever got it together and like was able to dominate New Jersey, they'd be the one. Um, but the Big Ten goes and and the powers uh, in their in their division go and take advantage as well now. So that's that's not great. Everyone's trying to get into Jersey, but um, 
I think there's something there. I think scheduling, like we always harp on, uh, adds a bit, uh, a lot into there. I mean, we get to the Carolinas every year. Now we get to Florida every other year. Um, I think you have to kind of take advantage and make that a selling point. And also, I think that was something Marone was very smart on. Um, he really drilled down on the places where it was easy to get to Syracuse. It was either a four or five hour drive or a direct flight. And those were kind of how he identified the recruiting areas. So, and Schaefer, I think expanded upon it a little bit. We got some guys out of the deep South where we were a lot like Stephen Clark, where we didn't go a lot. Um, but overall, I think, uh, I mean, Syracuse is always going to have uh, distinct disadvantages because of the private school thing and, and just not being in a geographic power uh where there are a lot of kids in, in our backyard but i think if you're smart about it you can sell the school well enough to guys that we're going to uh that are close enough um and want something a little different than you know the school that's in their backyard and still want to be able to play in front of their friends and family if not every week then you know once or tw- you know once or twice during their careers um so it's probably not easier than you know a school that can sit there and just bring in kids from two hours away all the time. But I don't think it's a, it's a totally hopeless thing because it's been done in the past. I mean, Syracuse hasn't moved locations in a, in a while. I don't think so. It's always been kind of what it is. Um, and the geographic hotbeds football are largely the same to what they've been for like 20 years now. So uh, we've proven we can win being a Syracuse school uh, up until this point. I think um, the right staff can figure it out again. Yeah, I'd agree there. Um, and I know you mentioned scheduling, uh, and obviously that's a that's a big, big pet peeve of mine, um, as well as Sean's, yours, and, and, and others around the site. Um, Schaefer definitely had a bit of a, a part in, in scheduling. Um, to what extent, I'm not sure how much, but I know um, based on things that I heard him say myself, it seemed like he at least weighed in um, before these contracts were signed, things like that. Um, Dan, do you think that that we see a shift in how schedules are constructed? Do you think that's very much still Herm Fraser's domain? Do you think that uh, we're still in for for power schools every year? Um, do you think that there's there's a chance that that we go all in on kind of you know max schools now um, to try to really uh, deposition them in terms of recruiting? Um, I think there's a chance there's a shift. I don't see us ever going to the full on, you know, just get four wins thing. I don't think that's even feasible at this point because pretty much every conference uh, makes schools schedule a power. I mean, now with the Big 12, I think everyone does. Um, And for the most part, I think Syracuse is going to be a school that's targeted by a lot of those other schools now. Um, Not everyone can schedule Kansas, unfortunately. Uh, I wish we would. But um, do it. <laughs> I'm interested to see because Coil is apparently taking over pretty much like the football side of things until we get up to speed, which is good. Um, I we should go back and see what he did at Boise, but I, I can't imagine a lot of what works at Boise or what Boise wants to do was similar to what SU wants to do because the programs are in totally different like spaces at this point. Um. But it's also notable that Babers, like, we've seen this kind of total overhaul, not just of the coaching staff, but pretty much all of football is kind of Babers' thing now. Obviously, Coyle is is his boss, but, I mean, Babers is bringing his cleaning house pretty dramatically, um, where Marone, and, I mean, Marone did, but he even kept on, like, Will Hicks, and he kept a couple other guys. Um, and Schaefer was pretty much an extension of Marone, except for the coaching staff for the most part. 
Babers is is really uh, making wholesale changes that we haven't seen in a long time. So I do wonder if uh, his mentality will um, kind of come into play here. And even that, like, like everything else, uh, because he wasn't at Bowling Green that long, I don't know when that contract with Tennessee was signed. Uh, I don't know if that was Babers doing, if that was Clausen's doing, if that was like in the butts for a year or four years. So um, a lot of the, there's a lot of mystery with Babers, not in steam. Like we know exactly what kind of offense he wants to run, but in terms of how he recruits and how he schedules and how he does all this other stuff, he just wasn't around at Bowling Green long enough for us to really have a good idea of what his his philosophies are. Um, so I think you know it'll be really telling to see what the first st- series schedule is now. Obviously, we Wisconsin I think was the last game we got on the uh, on the schedule, which we've had mixed at best feelings about. I mean, I'll be um, there. Oh, I, I hope to too, <laughs> uh, as long as I don't have any more life events. Um, but and that that'll be great. That'll be fun. I'm sure we'll all have a blast in Madison. But um. Uh, I, that's one of the things I, I'm very intrigued to see what uh, he has to say. I'm sure the the company line will be, you know, take all comers and, you know, we almost beat Tennessee. This Well, not almost beat, but they played Tennessee very competitively. I'm sure we can do the same at Syracuse. Um, but when it actually comes to putting guys on the schedule, uh, I, I do wonder what Baber's input will be, what his ideas will be. And I think, you know, in a year or two, we'll start to really get a sense for that. I think that's a good call. Um there's two more things on football um, that I promise for, for the basketball fans sitting there and, and chomping at the bit for us to talk about the, the elephant in the room. We'll get there. Um, so Babers wasn't really too specific when it came to defense, um, both in his remarks uh, to the press uh, at large as well as when he and I were on the phone last week. Um, but then I know um, one of our guys, was it Carl Jones? It was Carl Jones. Uh, that mentioned uh, they're going to be using a Tampa 2 by and large. Dan, does that make sense to you? Do you feel like this is going to be a little bit of a build now on on defense? Because from what I know of the Tampa 2, it seems like we need linebackers in coverage, which did not happen last year. Um, Nope. It seems like we need a lot of guys to be able to cover. I mean, you remember those Buccaneers teams. Um, that kind of originated the Tampa 2, um, and they were very, very, very uh, good um, in the secondary. But, you know, it, obviously it's not a one-to-one comparison, but when I think of the Tampa 2, I think of guys like Derek Brooks and guys like Rondé Barber, um, and, they were, and, you know, they were elite coverage guys. And, and no, we don't need to have, you know, Hall of Famers, um, you know, it, it, back there. But um, we probably need to have five to seven guys who can, who can cover um, – so, Dan, do you think how many years do you think it's going to take to really implement that? Um, and, and do you like that as a philosophy for college defense? Um, I think it'll, I think the shift in defense is something that's kind of being glossed over because obviously Babers is very much an offensive hire. Um, it's definitely not going to be the same as Schaefer. I mean, Schaefer, we kind of, I mean, it blew up in our face this year. And I, a lot of that was, you know, just the numbers game and it was bound to happen at some point. Um, but obviously Schaefer was very attack oriented, uh, very blitz heavy, um, um, you know, to a fault sometimes. But, you know, for the most part, it worked for seven years. Um, uh, Babers talked about an attacking defense, but with the Tampa two, I mean, there's a lot more placed on the defensive line to get pressure, which isn't something that's been 
um, all that easy for Syracuse and hasn't been kind of the way it's been for a while. Um, obviously, when Chandler Jones is, is out there or, you know, Ron Thompson does a nice job. But um, the defensive line hasn't gotten a lot of pressure by itself and it hasn't been asked to for a while. So that's definitely different. And the linebacking, uh, the things they're asked to do is going to be very different. And obviously, defensive back is a whole adventure that we suffered through this year. So um, I definitely think there'll be a a pretty large shift. Uh, I don't know really how long it'll take um, because it's, it's more philosophical. I mean, you teach guys techniques, but it's not like you're drilling down this elaborate, like offensive playbook. It's, it's concepts and, and just different um, overall ideals. So uh, it might take a while. I, I don't know. I, I never quite focus on the def- on shifts in defense and, and I haven't had to in a while because um, you know, I got to Syracuse and watched one year of G-Rob where defense, you know, was questionably even a thing. It was just, uh, I guess we had defensive players that went out there on the field. They generally didn't do much. Um, but since then, Schaefer kind of was at the helm for seven years as DC or head coach, and we kind of knew what to expect. So um, I don't have a lot of experience watching a team so closely change defenses. So I'm kind of... Uh, Having, I have the same questions as a lot of people, um, but it definitely, I, I think we'll be almost surprised how much different it looks because we've grown so accustomed to the blitzing steam, the, uh, you know, occasionally getting torched by a team, but generally being pretty competitive, et cetera. Um, I do think the one thing is, will there'll be a, uh, a big focus on getting turnovers that, that seems like something that Bowling Green did a lot this year. And, uh, one of the the mo- the happiest things for me is that instead of having the mindset of uh, putting your defense on the field because you think they'll make a stop, even when they're ranked like in the bottom 20 in the country, um, Babers will very much do everything to get the ball back in the offense's hands rather than put the defense in a better spot next time. Yeah, I think that was something that really hurt the Schaefer uh, regime toward the end. Um, you know, and, and it's it's and you started kind of wading into it. It's the kind of thing that makes me think that while it may take a year or so for this defense to to really kind of take hold with the current roster and the, and the, the incoming guys will be able to, based on how many of them hit the field, um, be able to adjust quickly. Um, a lot of them, want, the ones that Baber is recruiting specifically, are going to be built for the Tampa 2. Um, but yeah, what, what you're saying is correct that you know Syracuse should, if Baber's offensive system hits the way it should, um, be playing with leads. Um, you know, be specifically built to put the offense back on the field. And and the, the one downfall of the Schaefer, Schaefer attack, I felt, and a lot of people felt that way too, was it was very focused on getting the defense on the field for as long as possible. And, and that bend but don't break um, stuff only works if you don't break, um, or at least if you don't bend heavily every single time. Um, and we saw that this year when you had these, you know, just excruciating, you know, seven, eight, nine-minute drives to end games for teams to, to tie or win a game against Syracuse in, in contests where they probably should have won or, or at least um, should have hung around a little bit longer. Yeah, so I think an emphasis on the offense, and, and if an offense can, can click with Baber's scheme right away, um, we could see bigger returns than we think. Um, I still do think, I mean, you and I didn't touch on as much on the podcast during the season, but it was something that was touched on a ton in uh, in Brian's defensive uh, play calling breakdowns that was uh, the linebackers could not cover um, and, and then that's a stark difference from from previous years 
um, and it's something that is going to have to change quickly. Um, and this is where, and I haven't seen this in practice yet, but I'm assuming, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like we're going to end up recruiting a lot of big safety types, some of whom can get plugged into the linebacker spot. Um, if I'm, if I'm, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, because I feel like that's a, an easy way to gloss over that inefficiency right away is by having more safeties on the field um, and, and really dedicating them to the Tampa 2 right off the bat. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you want bigger players. Um, I also think having those kind of, like, we, we have, uh, at Syracuse, we've almost had, like, the opposite where we've had the smaller linebackers for the pressure, whereas the big safeties can kind of help us if we're playing a team that does a lot of uh, up-tempo stuff. You can kind of keep them on the field without having to sacrifice too much. Um, I think the biggest shift, uh, we just brought in Kenneth Ruff, who is a monster, um, and he's, like, unlike any linebacker we've had in a while, um, sits one two forty. Like obviously, we occasionally had a linebacker that size, like Luca Arseniega before he moved to defensive end. Is around that size, um, but right off the bat, I mean, that's a guy that you know almost all of our other linebackers coming into college have been like two fifteen, uh, and this is just a big dude, um, and he has tremendous offers, and I think is one of our best gets in a while. Um, but that's the it's it's definitely going to uh, stematically player wise, um, we'll definitely be a little bigger. I think uh, I'm sure we'll see. Um, I'm interested to see what the defensive line looks like because a lot will be asked of them. But um, I think uh, player size and player type will definitely be a shift um, because this will be, you know, a much different defense than what we're used to. Uh, and hopefully, I, I think one of, one of the things it shares is that Schaefer, you know, by blitzing so much, you do want to try to make big plays. And last year, we had a lot of interceptions early on, um, and that kind of died out as the year went on. And, and that's when we saw so many, like, ridiculous drives um we just couldn't couldn't quite make the big play and then the small plays were were not good either yeah no i i i think that's a very good characterization of it is that you know the first half of the year i remember what two or three weeks in we were we were tops in the country in terms of first forced turnovers turnover margin things were great and then obviously things fell off a cliff um one good quote on tampa two and then i will walk away from it and we'll just talk about some other recruits and then hit halftime um, going on Wikipedia, uh, Brian Mullen from the Tennessean uh, describes the Tampa 2 in this way. Um, says, typically the Tampa 2 players don't have the prototypical size of other NFL defenders. Obviously, he's speaking to the Tampa 2 directly with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, instead, the stress is put on speed, smart, and flawless tackling. A quick defensive line <laughs> is a must, but the middle linebacker position is the straw that stirs the drink. And there's a lot of grid good pieces there but the one i want to focus in on is that flawless tackling part because <laughs> i feel like that's the one place where i am so scared and excited for for what happens next you can correct me but i would not characterize syracuse football's tackling specifically in the 2015 season as flawless was it tackling <laughs> it was <laughs> It was like it was like a pushing. it was like it an was... interpretive dance that was supposed to resemble tackling. <laughs> it was rough pushing. <laughs> um, also, uh, on a bit of an aside, just going back to a couple points ago, um, I was wondering aloud what Bowling Green scheduling looked like, and I don't know that this is a a Babers thing or just uh, how things worked out. But next year, Bowling Green will open their schedule with at Ohio State, North Dakota. They have a two-year deal with Middle Tennessee. And then at Memphis. So, who oh boy. 
And then the year after, in 2017, they have a game at Michigan State. Uh, so I know they're getting paid. Um, I don't want to go play at Ohio State or Michigan State anytime soon. So uh, let's let's work our way up there, Dino. No, I agree. You know what? I, I do feel like if, if you're if you're arguably one of the three best MAC programs, you know what? You, you should have a deal with Ohio State or Michigan State. You get yourself a paycheck. You're able to help improve your facilities, um, improve you know your resources. And, and, and remain a preeminent MAC program. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, not everyone can go in there and, and get the talent. Not every kid that plays in the Midwest can go play in the Big Ten. Um, and if you're Bowling Green, if you're Northern Illinois, um, if you're Ohio to a point, um, and a couple other schools, you know, you can sell kids. I mean, this is what PJ Flex doing. Like, you, you, you can sell kids on being stars, uh, you know, at, at the group of five level. And, and in the MAC and in front of your friends and, and family and neighbors, you know, on a weekly basis. And, and once UMass leaves after this year, uh, you know, in, in a very geographically clustered conference, I don't necessarily think that, that that's a bad thing. But I also think it, it, it puts Bowling Green and others in a unique situation where, um, and I think the MAC's always been this way, is that you take the loss um, for, for the greater gains um, that come from it, especially, you know, if, if it's a close one. Yeah, and, and the, the goals of the Mac are, I mean, if a Mac fan wants to correct me, that's fine if they're listening. Um, with the Mac, I feel like the most realistic and achievable goal is almost always to win the Mac, and you're not harming yourself by playing Ohio State. And even for the Mac, unless a team like Northern Illinois like goes crazy like they did a couple of years ago, um, they're going to have an uphill battle getting into that final that final New Year's sit spot, um, especially with how good the AAC is, at least this year. Um, so like you said, there, there's something to be gained from playing Ohio State, especially because you're, you're probably getting a paycheck versus, you know, you would hope that a Syracuse would get a one-for-one deal with Ohio State, and you'd hope it would be at the Terrier Dome and not at MetLife. Um, it would be at MetLife. We all know this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we got LSU to show up to the Carrier Dome, Dan. We did. I, I mean, but Les Miles is a benevolent uh, dictator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did. No, but like you said, it's a lot different. I mean, that that game, you're getting, you know, 800000 900000 million. You're getting a once-in-a-lifetime experience for kids that are maybe from Ohio, from Michigan, whatever. Syracuse, you kind of have different goals and different objectives. And, you know, eventually, hopefully in 2019, we're playing, uh, we're getting ready for the Wisconsin game, and we no longer looks stupid because we're pretty good. Um, but obviously, different when you're, uh, especially when you're like an, a Bowling Green, you're like, well, we're going to win, we could win 10 games this year anyway, so let's do, take our shot. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of characterizing it for both schools. Um, last question on football, I promise, because <laughs> we're already kind of heading past overtime. Um, we've landed four new recruits. Um, who's kind of the most intriguing slash your favorite so far? And that's going out of Carl Jones, Liam O'Sullivan, um, Kenneth Ruff, who I think a lot of people are most excited about. Um, and, uh, Aaron, Aaron Cervase. Yep. The, uh, the um, Ruff, I think is the answer. I think he's the guy, like the offer list is awesome. Um, like these are the guys that we got really excited. We've gotten really excited about. You know, obviously he doesn't have the four stars, but if you like blindly and the stars, you know, we talk about them on a on a grand level. They they you want more than you want. You know, you don't want an entire class of three stars if you can avoid it. But on an on a single player level, um, 
they don't matter all that much. Um, but if you took a kid, an inside linebacker from Fort Lauderdale who sits one two forty, and he had offers from Clemson, Georgia Tech, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, NC State, North Carolina, Rutgers, South Carolina, um, Syracuse, Virginia, uh, you'd probably think there was a good chance he was a four star player. And that is the case with Ruff. He has all those and more. So this is a guy, he's not like a, you know, guy who was maybe going to be a Mac player and then Syracuse gave him the bump. Like this kid was offered by some big time schools. He was offered his main recruiter at Clemson was Brent Venables. So this wasn't like maybe he was a plan B guy for them, but they, they clearly had interest in him. So um, really legit player. Excited for him. Um, although I'm very intrigued by uh, the two linemen. Um, like I said before, there's definitely a type that Babers is targeting. Cervase is sits sits to sixty. O'Sullivan definitely a project sits seven to thirty seven. Uh, so you can kind of see like he wants these tall, rangy, probably athletic guys where he can get up the field quick and not have to worry about his lineman getting out of breath or um, not being able to put it up, you know put in one hundred percent every every play when we're targeting to run ninety to one hundred plays in a game. That's important. So. Um, I always love seeing kind of direction like that uh, in a system. Um, but in terms of just like the one guy, I think Ruff is, is the early guy to get excited about, and I think there will be a couple more. I would not be shocked if if this staff was able to land uh, one or two like four-star type big fish. Um, we, have, we talked about Moran before. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll be very – I think we'll be pretty happy with this class based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and, and I think, you know, we talked about the last two, cla- the last two, um, well, sorry, but two of the last three coaches, um, not counting Babers, um, have started late when it comes to recruiting, and, and, it, and it's shown. Um, I think Marone had a lot of rebuilding to do in terms of Syracuse's image, in terms of what it could do on the recruiting trail um, in New York State. Um, Schaefer obviously came in, um, you know, after the new year, Robinson right before the new year. Um, there just wasn't enough time um, for them, especially as they came in in the middle of the quiet period. Uh, you and I and others stressed what needed to happen um, for Babers was he needed to be, well, who, him or whoever was taking over the job needed to be installed uh, before the quiet period started, needed to be able to, to make some connections, and preferably was a head coach already that way that there were there were a lot more connections they could make. And this is the, the benefit here is that if you're – if you're uh, an existing head coach bringing in your staff, um, by and large, you can make all the connections you already made together as a group um, and sell them on a bigger, better proposition than you could before. And if they loved you but wanted a bigger stage, um, it, it's a pretty easy fit. And I think we've seen that already with, with the four guys um, that we brought in. Um, Surveys is an interesting case because, like you said, you know he's, he's a three-star now uh, via scout. Um, which is he wasn't when we uh, when we brought him in, but you know six six two seventy. Um, the point that others had made, um, and I, I included in the article about him this week, was uh, you know he's from the same school as uh, as the four star redshirt freshman quarterback James Morgan over at Bowling Green. I don't know if we flip him or if he uh, decides to jump over. Um, I think that that the final returns on quarterback is still up in the air. I think that Culpepper and I think Culpepper's in. I don't know about Scott. Culpepper is locked in because he signed his yeah. uh, his papers. So true. Even if Babers seemed to have welcomed him with open arms, like they were on their their visit, and Stu Bradshaw is into his teammate, um, but there wasn't a choice. Culpepper signed his papers under Schaefer, so the school's locked into him. 
Right. Um, and I think he'll be good anyway. So I'm not, that's not like a you know disappointed thing. Stott's weird. Um, people, it sounds like the staff has reached out to Stott. Stott hasn't really said anything about wavering. He got a two lane offer the other day, but I don't remember him saying a lot about it other than it's his hometown or home, one of his home state schools. Um, so I don't know. It's hard to tell because, uh, obviously Matt Johnson, of Bowling Green's not a tall guy. He's like six foot, six one Stott's listed at six feet. He's probably five eleven. if we're, you know, reading the tea leaves with how that always works. Um, but with Dave's system, just looking at like what, uh, what like Baylor's had, um, it's not like one type of quarterback succeeds. Like Baylor's had mostly pocket passers. It's also had guys. Obviously, RG three was a tremendous dual threat. Um, Jarrett Stidham, the the five star freshman who's played a little bit this year, is a dual threat. Um, Seth Russell and Bryce Petty both were more pocket guys, but they could both run. I think Seth Russell had like a ridiculous like I think he had like an 180 yard rushing game this year at one point. Um, so it's not like one style fit is is the the desired player for that system um so I, i've always been really impressed with stad he's like the data rate player of the year in louisiana which in, and he plays in the toughest division in louisiana which is one of the best football states in the country so just from my little knowledge of Stott's game i would love for babers to keep him and give him a shot um it doesn't seem like i mean there hasn't been a visit scheduled from my understanding um so it definitely seems tenuous but it, you know we only hear from one side on the, in these things most of the time. And Stott hasn't said a ton about his recruitment under Baber. So I think a lot of it's speculation up until we kind of find it, if he's coming or he's not. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see Scott um, come in. I think he might be worried. And, you know, this is a, this is all speculation here. Um, is that, you know, especially seeing what happened to Kentarius Womack last year, you have a, a pretty solid athlete, arguably one of the best in the class, um, and automatically gets kind of shifted over to a wide receiver spot. Um, I mean, that might not be accurate um, in terms of his perceptions, but you really can't blame him for seeing it um, as a possibility. Um, I do think Scott, from what I've, the, the limited tape I've seen, the limited numbers I've seen, um, I think that he's a quality quarterback, and I think he's someone worth giving a shot under center, um, but could be some concern on his part. Again, no inside knowledge there. Um I guess the last point I'll make on recruiting is that, um, you know, Bill Connolly's talked about it before on on his podcast um, and in some of his articles is that, you know, looking look at the total offers for kids um, and, and look at who's offering. Um, and what you're seeing, especially with a guy like Ruff, um, if you're getting offers from Alabama or, you know, any of the upper echelon ACC schools or any of the upper echelon Big Ten schools, or like you know most of the sec like this is that means that 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 star rating that that kid's given is probably a little off um because you know you have some i mean obviously they don't hit on everybody but um those top tier schools have a lot of great talent evaluators um and, and if you're if you're in the same ballpark as them and if you know you're getting if you end up you know reeling in that kid uh, chances are you, you got yourself a pretty good athlete. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And, and it's tough because a lot of the time a player can, you know, they might not know what their actual status is. Uh, there are a lot of conditional offers given out. There are a lot of, you know, this is a scholarship offer, but really, you know, if this other kid doesn't commit, we'll take you. Um, there are kids that straight up lie about them. Uh, that happens probably more than we think. 
So offer lists are definitely preferable to stars, but even those aren't like 100%. Um, I think it's even better if you kind of know activity. Like David Davis, uh, who is re-upped, well, he never really decommitted from Syracuse, but he said, you know, I'm still committed. I'm just totally opening up my recruitment. Um, he's apparently all in with the new staff now. But uh, I think the day before Babers and company visited him, he got a visit from Alabama. So there's like actual interest there. Um, I don't know if they offered or if they will offer, but uh, there's a difference between like confirmed activity from a coach to a player. And a lot of that's hard to, to gauge. Like maybe eventually you'll see a picture if they visit or something, if they post it on Twitter, but um, offers can be offers, offers can be, you know, maybe offers, offers can be totally made up. So there's no like great total perfect way to gauge something unless there's like hard evidence that something happened. Um, but like anything else, like just take it with a grain of salt. Um, and star ratings, obviously even more so because they're, judged by guys who don't run programs they there's a difference between like what one program values to another or you know levels of competition that are hard to compare on the on tape um so it's it's a very inexact science i think the guys at the recruiting sites do a pretty nice job and and as a whole uh like i said earlier and like like buddy elliott talks about it a lot um the schools that get the higher rated players are better off all the time but on like a one a kid-to-kid basis um it's it's very very tenuous in terms of there being an actual correlation to um, how they translate and, and and even from service to her service like I remember when Marquis Sproul came he was a two star on Stout and he was a four star on Rivals so figure that one out um, but overall um, yeah it's definitely you don't want to hang your hat on anything and and be, make it seem definitive because player stuff happens all the time. Uh, in terms of players totally blowing up and becoming superstars that were unrecruited that we, or guys who were five stars and flame out. Um, but most of the time there's like a, there's a solid correlation when you take like thousands of individual players. Um, hopefully Syracuse continues to find down of the diamonds in the rough. Like Mar- Marone was very good at that. So, but I wouldn't get too worked up over anything in terms of uh, like recruiting metrics because they are so hard to gauge. Agreed. Um, that's a good place to stop for football. Um, halftime. Dan, what have you been drinking for the last week? Dan. You're muted. Yep, I was muted. Um, <laughs> yeah, happens every podcast. Um, before Saturday's game, uh, that uh, shall not be named, um, <laughs> a bunch of us were at Stout. Uh, by Madison Square Garden, the official bar of St. John's, as we came to discover, um, which is funny because in Stout there were like 12 St. John's fans and like 70 Syracuse fans. But anyway, um, they actually had Cedar City's uh, High Ally IPA on tap, which was wonderful. Um, the first time I've seen it on tap anywhere in the city, I obviously had it before, uh, found it in a, in a bodega of all places. But um, So that was good. Had a couple of those uh, afterwards. Uh, a little bit of Brooklyn Brewery. Um, I think we had uh, Founders All Day, which always a standard. Um, and then, you know, some more generic things. There was some, some Dennis involved because it was early. Uh, but finding the highlight on tap was definitely the highlight of last week. Um, and really the highlight of Saturday, because the rest of Saturday, not Ugh. so good. The Packers won, which was good for me. But other than that, not a good sports. It was Sunday. The game was Sunday. Um, not a good sports Sunday for me, overall. Fair enough, fair enough. 
Um, on my end, um, I had a bottle of uh, Citrus Goza from Toolbox Brewing down in uh, San Diego. Really, really delicious Goza. Uh, very much heavy on the lime. So really kind of packed a punch um, in a good way. I mean, it was only hanging around like four and a half percent, but you really got uh, the tartness from that lime. Uh, had my office holiday party on Friday. So uh, luckily they had some Alesmith IPA on tap. So drank several of those. Um, grabbed a bottle of Noble Ale Works Citrus Showers. Um, their Showers Double IPA series, always a winner. Um, drank my bottle of Imperial Cabinet from the brewery. Um, they collaborated on this one with Jester King from down in Austin. Um, just a really, really interesting uh, sour blonde aged in oak barrels uh, with vanilla added. Uh, kind of a gin fizz inspiration, as they described it. Uh, really love this beer. Um, I would recommend it to anybody. Uh, it's so, so good and really unique, too. Um, had some Helderado from Firestone. Uh, for those who haven't had, it's a bourbon barley barley wine. Really good, um, as is most things with Firestone Walker. Um, had Confession uh, from the brewery. It was uh, a sour made with uh, Riesling grapes uh, along with Fess Parker Vineyards. Uh, definitely not as good as I was expecting from it, but nonetheless, enjoyable beer. Um, had some more Death by Coconut from Oscar Blues. Um, as mentioned previously, basically tastes like a Mounds Bar. Really delicious. Um, and then as we were starting the beginning of this podcast, uh, just drank a Haiku de Saison from Monkish, uh, which is right over here in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Um, just a standard saison aged in oak barrels. So yeah, that was my uh, my roster of drinks. Very nice, as always. Yep. So elephant in the room, Syracuse basketball, kind of in tailspin. Um, let's not even talk about any specific game because I feel like I'm just going to start yelling like profanity if I talk about any individual game but but dan if you had to point to one thing that was going horribly wrong what would it be um the team's not playing basketball well which i think is the main problem for the team struggling to play basketball always a struggle (laughs) um uh we've talked obviously a lot about the rebounding i think that's the most obvious thing um the shooting it's easy to get i mean the shooting is always going to be the first thing people point to um and obviously against St. John's, it totally failed us, especially. I mean, I was there. It was ugly. Um, the problem is it, when the shooting goes cold, this team, for whatever reason, struggles around the basket. Some of it's youth, like Tyler Lydon's obviously not physically there where he's going to be you know, banging in the post. But um, you, you, down the stretch of the St. John's game was the most frustrating thing because we probably had, what, like eight or nine layup looks that we bricked each one of. The last um, four minutes of that game, we we had every opportunity. We were causing turnovers. It was it was weird. Not it was not to interrupt. I was t- telling my buddy, who's also an SU grad um, at work, and we were both saying the weird thing was, despite a team that doesn't play well on defense for an extended period of time, it seemed like when when the entire floor was chaos in those final kind of four or five minutes, Syracuse seemed to play its best defense of the entire afternoon. Yeah, they put on the pressure, they got forced turnovers, they forced unsettled shots, and then they get 
a like wide open layup looks or or you know minimally contested layup looks and miss them, or they get just fantastic transition three looks that they were killing teams on in the Atlantis uh, tournament and missing them. And the jump shooting, like I, I it, it's obviously it's frustrating when it goes cold like that. We've seen this team shoot really well for multiple games at a time, and I refuse to believe that this game will just like this team will just suddenly not be able to shoot ever again. I think the shooting will come back. It, it, I don't know if it'll ever be, you know, every game we're going to get 35% from three and, and 50 from the floor. But I think there will be games where Syracuse gets red hot again. Um, the rebounding has been an issue all year. Uh, the defense is just not quite up to, up to par. And a lot of that's the interior defense is, is very, uh, very questionable. Um, things around the perimeter are, are pretty good. At times, with you know Cooney's very active, Benajay's very long, so it's tough around him. But um, we definitely can't trust uh, Frank Howard or Caleb Joseph there, which is a problem. I think it's the main reason why neither of them are getting a ton of playing time so far. Especially Joseph, like you, you'd think after a year uh, he'd kind of have it, but um, he just does not seem to grasp the defensive concepts. And hopefully, uh, he'll turn that around. But uh, it's the last couple of games. It's just been a whole, it's like everything going wrong at once. The shooting has been told for a couple of games now. Um, at, at least the last four cold day, we blew up, but cold dates, you know, whatever. Um, the rebounding continues to be an issue. Defense is under, you know, below average, at least for what we've seen from recent Syracuse teams. Um, and there's just no, there's no guy that you can lay last year, even when, when the, the, the shooting was often pretty bad. You knew if you got racked the ball, you could probably get him going, and then you could get open looks. There's no like go to. I mean, you could have Benajay drive. You can have a couple guys go to the hole, but there's no just like kick it down the rack. He'll have a good chance of getting a bucket, and then he'll open things up, and you can kind of get points off the board even when the shot isn't falling. Now the three pointer is the the go to um, move, which we were excited about early and was working early on, but. There's like the plan B's are all so much worse that it's it's causing this offense to shut down really easily. Yeah, and, and you know what I think you and I talked about it last week is that this team was turning into a little bit of last year's team. Um, that is, if one player doesn't score, they're not going to win. Last year it was Rocky and Christmas. This year it's Michael Benajay. Um, you know, Benajay only took four shots in the second half. He really didn't take a ton in the first half either. Um, Dan. Do you think that the Benajay needs to take fifteen to twenty shots a game in order for this team to win? Um, I mean, he probably needs he needs to take more shots in general. Um, I hate like saying Etz Die needs to do exactly this, but at this point, I mean, Benajay definitely needs to be more aggressive. I think Lyde needs to be more aggressive. Those are the guys that have been the most efficient scorers. Um, and and I I know. From Benerjay, it hasn't really been in his nature since he's been at Syracuse, except for like the couple of games where he's gone crazy. Um, but he, you know, he passes up a lot of like pretty good shots because they're not like amazing, you know, wide open shots. Same with Leiden, and I get it from him being a freshman. But I think those guys both need to start looking for their own shot, just because they've been more efficient, they've been more uh, effective than Cooney, and um, obviously uh, Richardson's been in a slump for the last couple of games, um, which happens. I. I he was driving me crazy for a bit, but I did appreciate he was getting the line at least in the second half. Roberson, just game to game, you have no idea what you're going to get from him, and that continues to be 
but he's definitely he doesn't have a, a no-to offensive move. He's either you get him with an open lane and he can get to the line pretty effectively, but otherwise it's it's a struggle and he, his jumper is just not really a, a factor at all. Um, but yeah, I, I think Leiden will continue to find it and he will probably develop more of an offensive, a well-rounded game as we get out get along in his career here. Um, but Benajay, yeah, he definitely needed to take more shots, especially in that last game. Considering what was he like, he had a ridiculously efficient line, um, and down the stretch, he just you know, unless he was wide open, he just didn't seem to want to take it. Which you know, I, I appreciate him being conscious of it and him uh, wanting to take good shots and get his teammates involved. But at some point, you know, you need to be a little bit selfish when you're the best player on the team. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like when you're the best player on the team, you can't win. Either you're too selfish or you're not selfish enough. Um, and that's something that Benajay is going to have to figure out how to balance, especially when the rest of the team isn't shooting. I mean, the, the mark of a great shooter or a great leader um, on the team is that when nobody else is, is delivering, that's your time to step up. And I think that that game could have been a golden opportunity for Benajay to really take control of his team. Um He's already proven it's his by way of um, just a lead play, but I, I think he's got to do more of it. Um, it's not to say he's played poorly. He's, in fact, played amazingly. Um, he leads the team in most statistical categories. Um, and he's shooting 50% from three. He was shooting similarly last year. Um, he's, he's a defensive force. Um, you know, He leads the team in steals by almost a full steal per game. Um, he's leading the team in assists by uh, a full assist per game. He's leading the team in points by nearly six points per game. I mean, this is a guy who, who needs the ball in his hands, and, and it, it's refreshing and, and frustrating at the same time to see him not take full advantage there. And we were just seeing, you know, brick three after brick three. And it's worth talking about Trevor Cooney quickly because I think seeing him miss that, that wide-open look at the end of the first half on Sunday, um, seeing his sporadic play especially in the first halves of games uh been crippling uh for Syracuse as he racks up fouls and turnovers um Dan do you have any idea what's going I mean I know you don't really have any inside information here but can you even begin to kind of ponder what's going on with Cooney is, is it is it just the end of the road for him we're just gonna ha- kind of have to to deal with the the end of his career not really going out the way we might have once envisioned it uh, I don't know. It it seems like he's he's definitely forcing, and it almost seems like his struggle shooting the ball has kind of started to plague the rest of his game. Where early in the year we were praising his defense and his hustle, and you know he did when he was missing, he wasn't taking a lot of shots. But it almost seems like he's so frustrated that he's going to just kind of shoot until he makes, and that's obviously hasn't been, that hasn't been working at all. And uh, his defense has kind of gotten sloppier, and uh, I, I don't know if it's the minutes that he's forced to play um, and, and really there isn't a good option after him. So I still don't think you can bench him as much as I know a lot of Syracuse fans want to, like you just, you're not putting Joseph in for a lot of minutes right now. Like it's just not, it doesn't seem to be something that we can do. Um, I just think that over, like he's just in a, almost like a full game slump where even, you know, not just his shop, but kind of everything is kind of going, falling apart. And I don't know if it's a confidence thing, or just a, a frustrations thing, but um, he definitely he needs to get back to a level where even if his shot isn't falling, he's contributing in other in other ways. And it's just the last couple of games that hasn't been the case. So I don't know. I, I'm not nearly the basketball mind to be able to diagnose him, but 
Um, there have been games past where, you know, he drove like two for sits from the field, but he did a bunch of steals and he'd be a, a force on that end. And, and the last couple of games, he's just been so out of control on both ends that it's, it is very disconcerting. Yeah. And, you know, I think it only kind of him staying in is kind of lending to, I guess, my last topic on basketball. And that is a growing group of Syracuse fans who are already pretty pissed off at, at the Hopkins era. And, um, you know, I, I hate to cater the lunatic fringe, but the lunatic fringe is starting to grow into a, a decent amount of people. Um, and I've said it uh, in our Slack room. Um, you know, others have said it too. Like th- this really was kind of a worst case start for the Hopkins era. I don't really think it's indicative of anything, especially with so limited time um, to prepare for for the start of his nine game stint as the uh, as the head coach, but. Dan, do you think that, that Hopkins, by his fault or otherwise, has kind of put himself in a, a precarious situation? He's obviously the coach regardless, but precarious situation in terms of fan confidence, um, in terms of you know where this team stands. Um, do you think it's really just like complete, utterly and completely beyond his control? Um, does this fan really, the fan base really just need to calm the F down because that's we kind of operate, you know, at, at, a, at an 11 on the 1 to 10 scale in terms of intensity at all times. Uh, the last part is, is definitely true. Um, <laughs> we know this across the board uh, when things are going well, when things are going poorly. Um, this fan base doesn't take things with uh, – There's perspective is not a strong suit, and I think we're all guilty of that at different levels as well. Um, but as a fan base, we are not great at, you know, taking a step back ever, which is just – part of the part of the deal um i like you said i think hopkins fell into an awful situation um obviously i don't know if that it wouldn't be any better him stepping in when he was supposed to originally take the uh take control of the team at the beginning of acc play but um i almost wish like they had just given Bayheim like a week to get through the the georgetown uh st john's like that whole stretch that hopkins ended up having to coach here because like, his first game was at our arch rival on the road against, you know, not a good St. John's team, like maybe an average St. John's team. Um, I actually won't take too much away from them from losing to Monmouth because Monmouth is, like, legit, like, really good. But um, that's a really tough place to step in. Like, if he had stepped in for the Tollgate game or for this coming uh, Cornell game and had, like, a five or six game period to kind of get used to being the coach, I think we'd see a lot, it'd be a lot different, but his first ever game doing things that he, you know, outside of the last few minutes of the, the Duke game where he was a jet, where Bam was ejected. Um, like Hopkins doesn't have control, hasn't controlled the team from the opening tip before. It's, you know, he's been on the bench for 20 years. You, he's almost definitely picked things up and he knows, you know, what Beheim does from game to game, but that doesn't mean he's actually done it before. So maybe we were asking a lot for him to come in and shepherd the team to like uh, an undefeated, you know, nine and zero stretch here. Um, but he did inherit a team with, with significant flaws. Uh, I don't know that things would be a lot different under Bayheim. It seems like Hopkins is kind of doing similar things. Maybe he's, maybe Bayheim is kind of the whiz when it comes to adjustments, but, um, I expect things to get better. Uh, I don't know that it's, it's totally, uh, Hopkins fault and, you know, maybe he costs us a game or two, uh, out of these nine or something, but it's, I don't think it should be a referendum on him being the coach going forward um i'm sure some people will make it one uh because there's always that guy um i think a lot of it also depends on when Beheim actually retires because 
you know, we expect it to be after the three years, but, you know, maybe something happens this year and Beheim's like, all right, I'm, I'm good. Maybe Beheim does it, you know, it, after next year. I think the proximity to this stretch will have a lot to do with how people react to Hopkins taking over, um, which is probably unfair because he, you know, inherited such a, a crappy situation, and we don't expect him to be an exact Beheim clone when he actually has his own team. But he's obviously not going to coach this team radically differently than what, what Jim would do. So, it's tough. Hopefully he kind of rebounds in this like kind of light stretch of games before the ACC gets him used to it, and then he can get through those first three conference games without too much of an issue. But um, definitely not the start he wanted or anyone else expected because St. John's is really – St. John's isn't good. So, <laughs> um, like, I, I, I don't say that to, like, make light of the loss or, or anything. Like, St. John's lost to Chaminade this year. Uh, they're, they're a bad basketball team, and, and some, some part of that game was them – having two guys that just red, red hot from three and hitting like 28 footers. But like, there's no way Syracuse should be losing to that St. John's team. And they did. So it, there's, there's definitely some concern there. I don't know really who the blame gets pointed to, but it's, it's very easy to point it at Hopkins because he is the unknown on this, on, on the coaching staff right now in a new, whole new role. Yeah. And I think that's something that everyone needs to kind of consider. Like, I know when I was talking to people in the comments and on Twitter, like, at the end of the day, um, no, this team doesn't look great under Hopkins, but they also didn't look great um, under Bayheim against Wisconsin. Um, and what, what ailed them against Georgetown and against St. John seemed to be continuation and then the exacerbation of the same issues um, in the loss of the Badgers. Um, I, I think that, you know, anyone who thinks that Bayheim would bench Cooney for, for an extended period is fooling themselves. Um, anyone who thought the the only thing I think Baham might have done is maybe pulled Malachi Richardson while he was literally just chucking. Um, but beyond that, um, I think you know Hopkins coached his team very much in a similar fashion to the, the way that Beheim would have. And 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 like you said, you, you're not going to really undergo any fundamental changes um, under Hopkins. Um, I think it's it's got to be frustrating and, and a little debilitating for Hopkins to have to take over a team that he really wasn't prepared to take over um, maybe just yet um, from a strategic and philosophical standpoint. Um, he's not necessarily being given free reign to do what he, whatever he might do. And you know what? That might happen for him for the first year or so. He's He's got his own team when it finally happens um, just because of the specter of Jim Beheim hanging over the program. Um, and especially when he can actually, you know, when the two of them can actually communicate um, but yeah, I, I think he was put in a, a shitty situation. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's worth holding it against him. Um, and in general, I, I think we're all just going to have to kind of grin and bear it. Um, obviously, you don't want to turn a blind eye to issues. And if, if we start to see, you know, in-game decisions from, from Hopkins that, that show something is off or, or just personnel problems that, that show that he's not connecting, that's one thing. Um, but you know what? You saw some great decisions. I mean, it's obviously his call to go to the press uh, at the end of that St. John's game. It's not his call to, to miss shots. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that that's an execution issue. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's him, you know, just getting on the morning practice. But he's always run practices, or at least has for, for a while. Um, so I don't really think it's worth jumping on that point either I, I think this really is just a rough stretch it just so happened to come at the absolute worst possible time for Syracuse fans psyches and uh, we're all just gonna have to you know just put our heads down and deal with it 
Thanks, NCAA. <laughs> the, uh, the proverbial boogeyman, always always hanging out next to the program. Yep. Over for like 12 years, literally next to the program, just making sure all the all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and the players who seemed to have fine academic records were not allowed to play. So thanks again, NCAA, for everything you do. Woo! And on that note, uh, I think we're done here. <laughs> this has been Troy Noons. This is an absolute podcast. Dan, thank you for joining us again today, as always. Yes, hopefully next time we record, we can spread more holiday cheer. That and is... not, not worry about <laughs> Mike Hopkins losing basketball games he shouldn't and getting run out on a rail by fans who have been asking for him to take over for 20 years. That is the plan. Um, we'll let you guys know if there will be a podcast next week. Um, given the holiday, etc. But in the meantime, uh, please be sure to re- rate, review, subscribe, the whole deal uh, to Trending's and Absolute Podcast on Blog Talk, on iTunes, and uh, yeah, go orange this weekend. Go orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion, and once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.